watch over troubled waters. <laughs> I will lay me down. Just trying to set the mood, boys. It was wonderful. Just it's trying kind of to a set the mood. Bummer mood, though. Just to be clear, what bridge over troubled waters? Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel. I, Does that yes, not bring the bridge is over the waters, yeah, Maggie? <laughs> so not, not in the, water, in the trouble. It's not uniting like uniting left a right being buffeted by uniting all of America. Is that what it does? All right, we are already re recording. So oh man, it's really I'm going first, right? Great. Who wants to introduce? Like in the, as we sure, just go for it. My name is Thomas Magby, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, and an uncharacteristic entry into the episode. I am joined as always by Mr. <laughs> Graham Donaldson. Yep. Whose <laughs> <laughs> beautiful uh, baritone you got to hear earlier. And Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. That's me. And I am so thrown off right now. I'm just, uh, I guess we just, we keep rolling with this. I like it. Uh, A.J., I believe today is your episode. I think we're in for another uh, another pick-me-up episode. Just really cheery. <laughs> just another really upbeat episode. So uh, you want to take it away talking about uh, Mr. Albert Camus? I do. Thank I you. am talking about Albert Camus or Albert Camus. Albert Camus, as us Texans say, mm. and his book, The Stranger, or in French, L'Etranger. Mm. Mm. Right? We're sure that's the correct pronunciation, right? Yeah, actually, I took really? French. Yeah, it's hey, pretty did close. Did you actually take French? Yeah. Good for you, man. It served me well in Texas. <laughs> I'm sure. There's, Paris, there's Paris, Texas. There is Paris, Texas. That is true. And I'm sure they all speak French yeah, in Paris, uh -huh. Texas. Oui. Anyway, it's, it's, yeah, it's by, it's uh, a yeah, book called The Stranger by Albert Camus. I read this in college and loved it and read it again a couple of years ago and still loved it. And mm. I read it again today because <laughs> I needed an episode and I still love it. It's oh, still good. great. And I realized, well, I, so this is going to be a two-parter and don't worry, we're going to get through the whole book in just this part because I realized at the end of The Stranger that I don't fully understand Albert Camus' philosophy. And so I looked it up and it pointed me towards an essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. And I began reading it and quickly realized that I couldn't finish it in the two hours I had left before we podcasted. And in any case, I think it both will stand on their own as episodes. And so I'm going to kind of think of this week's as sort of setting the stage with The Stranger. I'll, I'll give it to you. We can kind of talk about it. We even have a fun reading thing planned for later Ooh. where we all read together. That's fun. And then I told you it was fun. That's going to be good. Uh, and then next week, we'll sort of pull apart Mr. Camus and his philosophy and talk about absurdity, which is kind of where we are headed. And that'll be a real cheery episode because <laughs> the big question is, should we all commit suicide? Yeah, great. Wonderful. I kid you not. That's what the myth of Sisyphus is about, right? Sounds great. Yeah. So <laughs> look forward to some the, real yeah. up episodes with me. Right. And that's, are you that's, doing okay? Do we need to? I'm, yeah, great, I'm doing good. great. Wonderful. The funny thing is I try, like I read this because I didn't, I started reading Phaedo last night uh -huh. by Plato and that is Plato having discussions before he dies. And uh -huh. part of what he talks about is any philosophical man should be ready to die and should not only be ready for it, but Socrates. welcome it and seek death. Yeah, Socrates. Socrates. Oh, okay, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is a real bummer. Yep. And then I picked up The Stranger today and it's oh, woof. I just, I'm in a whole, I'm on a whole f literature funk right now. Anyway, Albert Camus ran the Nobel Prize for Literature in 57. And this was written in, I think, 48. Okay. I think this is when this book kind of, uh, 46. Okay. This is when that book kind of dropped. And let's just jump right in. I, I have some personal comments after we're done, but I'll get there. So... So you're just sharing how the this affected first. me in college. Okay. Got it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So we're just going to I'm going to kind of give you the novel and then we're going to read a section and then we can sort of pull that section to pieces together and 
and then we'll all have personal comments and you guys can help try to fix me <laughs> which what? i'm real excited for wonderful um i mean you guys know me i'm not a i'm not well put together okay <laughs> as a person all right, so this is the story of a guy named, I, I know I'm going to mispronounce this name, Merceau. Great. It's M-E-R-S-A-L-U. Be, be bold. You're S-A-U-L-T. Mersault. Okay. Sure. All right, so Mersault, it begins with him uh, going to a town a little ways outside of where he lives to attend his mother's burial. And the book is particularly famous for its first few lines that kept, kind of captures the ethos and the philosophy of our main character. Okay. Maman died today. Or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. And that's kind of it, right? Yep. It's He's like, I don't really know when my mom died. I got the telegram yesterday and the funeral's tomorrow, but that doesn't mean anything. It could have been yesterday. She could have died earlier than that. I have no, no way of knowing. Sad. And so he gets himself together. Maman. Maman. And he, he gets on the bus. Maman. And it's not. It's definitely not a story of his grief as he heads to take care of his mom. He's like, well, I, I, was, I must have been tired because I slept and I found myself waking up having slept on this soldier and he asked me if I was traveling long and I said yes so I wouldn't have to say anything more and then he goes to the funeral home and I guess this scene becomes important later he goes with the little attendant guy to see his mother and the casket isn't screwed down yet and the guy's like do you want to see your mom and he says no hmm. and the guy goes why and he goes I don't know Fair enough. And then the main character offers him a cigarette. And so they smoke in the room with his mom there. Okay. And then the guy offers him some coffee and Mersault takes the coffee and he drinks the coffee. And then they have the overnight vigil and a whole bunch of old folks come in and they all sort of sit on the opposite side of room, opposite side of the room and look at him. And he feels like he's being judged by them. And then he's like, man, they're really old. Then he notices one lady crying and she kind of gets on his nerves because she cries too much. And then he's like, what is that weird noise? is that and it turns out the old people are sort of sucking on their cheeks because they don't have any teeth and that begins to annoy him and then the lights annoy him and then he just he's he's not comfortable and that happens kind of all night at the very end everybody kind of goes home what a jerk the funeral happens honestly right wait you think he's a jerk yeah how come because the old people are coming paying their respects and he's annoyed yeah seriously it doesn't annoy you when people are sucking on their faces but he went to their 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 fault right isn't he in there he's not going to their parents funerals yeah doesn't they're going to his parents because they loved her. Yeah. And he's just annoyed with them. Yep. Because they're doing something annoying? Yeah. Is that yeah they're doing okay. something annoying. Okay. And then he goes... Not a fan. Fair. <laughs> I think this is where we'll have a good conversation near the end. All right. So then, then is the funeral. And he they have to walk like 45 minutes to get there. And it's just stiflingly hot. And he's in, a, he's in funeral clothes and... He just can't escape the heat. And then one of the nurses is like, yeah, but if you take off all your really nice clothes, you're going to get a chill in the church because you sweat too much. So, you, you know, there's no way out. You're kind of darned if you do and darned if you don't. And then there's this guy that clearly was attached to his mom. They were to, in, inseparable. Uh-huh. And they used to call her his fiance. And they he's he can't really keep up because he's kind of old and he's got a limp. And then he falls behind. And so he cuts across the country to catch him. And then he catches him for a minute. And then he falls behind again. And then he cuts across the country and... By the end, he's like crying and all the tears are like running down his wrinkles and stuff. And the main character is like, he looks hot. And then he's like, it was really hot. And at one point, that guy passed out, Perret, the, per, the the old fella. Right. And But it's only he said he kind of says that in passing. And he's like, mostly it was hot. And then I got back on the bus and went home. And I hate this guy. Yeah, <laughs> right. That feels like the right takeaway. Why? Why? He's a jerk. Because he, he doesn't care about these people. He's. He does not care about others. He's just like describing his annoyances with 
like the climate poor Mm -hmm. and doesn't care about how it impacts this poor old man that's right yeah who was close to his mother right with the milk of human kindness and he's filled with the bitterest gall of i don't know mid-century french philosophy yeah yeah you tell life is how to get used to it (laughs) (laughs) all right so after that after that little episode with his mom and the funeral uh he goes home and he goes he decides with his extra sunday right because the funeral was kind of on a friday and He's kind of tired on Saturday, but with his Sunday, he's like, you know what? I think I will go to the beach. That seems awfully nice. So he goes to the beach and he sees there this typist that used to work at his job. Her name is Marie. And he's like, I kind of had a thing for her at the time. And I think she had one for me. And so they kind of hang out and they start to flirt and and they're kind of like, you know, things are kind of moving forward and he's kind of excited. And he's like, you want to go to the movies? And she's like, sure. There's a new, they mentioned a film, a filmmaker. And I guess he's a a comedic filmmaker. And he's like, sounds fine to me. And she's like, I, at some point, she's like, how's your weekend? He's like, oh, my mom died. And she's like, when? And he goes, yesterday. She's like, he's like, she looked shocked, but I don't know why. And then they, they go to the movies and then they kind of go home and they spend some time together. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh-huh. And then after that, they're kind of together. And it sort of develops what his life looks like. And his life is generally, he goes to work. He's a hard worker. He doesn't shirk his responsibilities. Um, really, he, the whole dead mom not caring wasn't a red flag for poor old Marie? <laughs> Honestly. Nope, she likes him all right. Okay, great. He seems to be pretty straightforward. Okay. Uh, and we are sort of introduced to his friends and neighbors. Uh, one of his neighbors is a fellow named Salomano, who has this dog. And okay. Salomano is old, and the dog is also very old. They kind of match. And they end up, you know how dogs kind of look like their owners? This yes. is the epitome of that. Mm-hmm. Salomano's dog has a skin disease oh. that makes all his hair fall out and his, his skin get covered with scabs. Does maybe look like Liza? Oh, mm. you're both you very, it? you're very affable. I'm not blonde enough though to be like my golden retriever, right? But you're both just like overflowing with joy. That's very kind of you to say. I'm uncomfortable, so I'm going to stop talking now. Good talk. <laughs> and the man is also old and doesn't have a whole lot of hair and has scabs on his skin. And the worst thing about these two is that they hate each other, the man and the dog. Uh, oh. The, he will take the dog out to go to the bathroom and then the dog tugs the man along and the man is old so he can't keep up and so he swears at the dog and then beats it. Mm. And then the dog cowers behind him for a while and then forgets that he was recently beaten and then begins to pull the man again and the man pulls the dog back, beats it and swears at it and then it cowers and it's just sort of this like weird yo-yo effect all the way down the street. Sure. Uh, and he'll he'll come back later but that's that's one of his neighbors and everyone feels kind of sad for the dog except right. our main character. He's like, you know, that's it's just a thing that happens. And we also meet a guy named Raymond Sintez. And Raymond Sintez is another neighbor that kind of has a sour reputation for... They, everyone, everyone says, hey, I guess he lives off women, but I think it's actually the other way around. He sort of provides oh. for them. So he has one that's sort of a live-in mistress girl that he's kind of had a falling out with. And he meets our main character and he says, look, man, let's hang out and be pals and be friends. And then what we're going to do is you are going to write a letter for me because I'm bad at writing letters. Now, this girl I had living with me, I paid all her expenses, just enough so that she could pay the bills and have a little bit of living money. But she always said she she could never make ends meet. And then I find all kinds of extra stuff she's got, like necklaces and some other things that she's pawned. And so clearly she's got some other guy on the side and the evidence is real thin. So he's like, so I beat her up real good and then kicked her out. And what I want you to do is write a letter that gets her to come back so that I can spend some time with her, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and then spit in her face. And then I'll send her out the door. And our main character is like, I didn't really want to make Raymond mad. So I said, okay. And I'm pretty good at writing. So I thought I'd give it a shot. So he writes the letter and Raymond sends it off. And 
it works. The woman comes back and I guess the man spits in her face, Raymond spits in her face and then she slaps him. And so he starts, he starts beating her up real good. This won the Nobel prize. (laughs) I said he won the Nobel prize. I didn't say this book particularly, but from what I know, it's one of the more famous of his works. Yeah. Uh, And so the cops come and the cop smacks Raymond around a little bit. And uh, Marie is also there. They're sort of watching this scene, whole scene unfold in the apartment next to theirs. And our main character just sort of watches and smokes and doesn't really say much. And Marie seems really disgusted. And when they are about to have lunch afterwards, uh, Mersault eats all the food. And he's like, I don't know. Marie wasn't hungry. I didn't really know why. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and after that, they're still friends. And who Raymond and Raymond Marceau? and our main guy. He's like, Oh, we're, you know, we spend some time together, go to the movies, hang out. It's fine. They're, we're friends after that. And, Raymond feels good because he's he feels like the girl got what was coming to her for cheating on him, and then they're okay. Except that this woman's brother has a bunch of friends. Uh, they call them the Arabs, right? These Arab because she was Moorish, so they they kind mm. of hang around. And he's like, I think her brother's after me. Uh, I think. Yeah. So he's like hanging out, and he tells him, Hey, you should let me know if those guys are hanging around because I think one of them's got it out for me, and it's kind of a thing. Um, and uh, Mersault is eventually questioned by the police. Marceau, Marceau, is it Marceau? You guys just told me to go for it. I said go for it. Graham is a man of culture, I'm sure. And I'm a Texan. It's Merceau, I think. <laughs> Good. Uh, sure. It's Great. probably like Merceau. Merceau. Sure. Anyway, so he's questioned by the police, and he backs up the guy's story that she was cheating on him. And they didn't really check it out, so <laughs> the guy gets off. And You like this book? I love this book. Why do you like this book? Uh, I, you will see Great. In, okay. in nary a minute. It's coming up. Okay. Okay. After that, he gets a marriage proposal from his girl. From Marie? Yeah. Girl, you got to get out. Yeah, seriously. Why is she okay with this? And Marie proposes to him? Is that what you Marie proposes to him. Okay. <gasps> Marie. Marie. Okay. Let's see. Child. That evening, Marie came Someone by to, to see you. me. And the, all, of the, all of the sentences are written very much in a... Who wrote Sun Also Rises? Hemingway? It's very yeah. much Hemingway, right? Mm. They're short, choppy sentences, very straightforward. There's not a lot of embellishment or or evaluation of what is being said. The author doesn't tell you if things are tragic. It's like, just, I felt bad. I cried. <laughs> went to bed. Yes. Woke up. Yeah, very much that. So if you're wondering about the style, you're, you're going to hear it. That evening, Marie came by to see me and asked me if I wanted to marry her. I said it didn't make any difference to me, <laughs> and that we could if she wanted to. Then she wanted to know if I loved her. I answered the same way I had the last time, that it didn't mean anything, but that I probably didn't love her. So why marry me then, she said. I explained to her that it didn't really matter and that if she wanted to, we could get married. Besides, she was the one doing the asking and all I was saying was yes. Then she pointed out that marriage was a serious thing. I said, no. She stopped talking for a minute and looked at me without saying anything. Then she spoke. She just wanted to know if I would have accepted the same proposal from another woman with whom I was involved with in the same way. I said, sure. Then she said she wondered if she loved me and there was no way I could know about that. (laughs) After another moment's silence... She mumbled that I was peculiar, but that was probably why she loved me, but that one day I might hate her for the same reason. I didn't say anything because I didn't have anything to add, so she took my arm with a smile and said she wanted to marry me. I said we could do it whenever she wanted. Then I told her about my boss's proposition, and she said she'd love to see Paris. He, the boss wants to send him to Paris to start a new office. I told her that I lived there once, and she asked me what it was like. I said, it's dirty. Lots of pigeons in dark courtyards. Everybody's pale. And... That's kind of... Ooh, edgelord, so edgy. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, he's just being straightforward. He's not playing the game. He's not going to dress up a city if he feels that it's dirty and there are a lot of pigeons. And I've been to Paris, 
And there are a lot of pigeons. Paris is beautiful. And it, there's a lot of dirt. Paris is... I've never been. Can this, both be true? This is it's, a, I think both are true. Okay. The city of light. But do you see kind of how he approaches everything? Sure do. He's just very straightforward, and he doesn't embellish. And he's like, I don't, probably don't love you, but I don't know that it matters. We can get married if you want to. It's, is uh, straightforward the right word for that? One thing is the Cold. Same. I need like, yeah, I need a more negative, uh, a word with more negative Gelded. Yes. But he's, I mean, he's being... Honest. Accommodating. <laughs> she wants to get married and he's like sure whatever you is want accommodating bro. what you want from the person you're marrying I don't absolutely know. Okay. <laughs> i don't know all right so they both get invited to a day at uh one of raymond remember raymond the mm-hmm. punchy punchy no, guy I remember raymond. so a day at one of his friends beach bungalows and they all decide to go and on the way out they see the group of arabs still kind of hanging around hanging around the place and they're like let's just try to lose them on the bus so they jump on the bus and they go to the beach and for the first part of the whole day, it's very pleasant, right? The water's nice. They swim some. They eat a really early lunch, and everyone's pretty happy. And then they all go out for the afternoon. The The boys go out on a walk because the ladies are taking a nap. And they see that the Arabs have somehow, somehow followed them. And I, I refer to them that way because that's how they're referred to in the book. So they, they figure this out. And then they have kind of a meeting. In the, and mas, uh, so, Raymond says, hmm. I'll take my guy, the brother, if the other one gets involved, you take that guy. And he's he's got a gun, and they don't really want to involve that if possible. But he's who like, has a right. gun? Uh, I think Raymond does. Raymond, I think okay, that so kind of comes with the gun on their side. Yeah, right. they've got a gun on their side, but they're not they're not planning on using it. And so the Arabs come up, and there's a there's a little bit of a dust up. There's a fight, and one of the guys knocks out one of the Arab fellas, and then. Um, so Raymond gets his guy, and then the other guy gets knocked out too. So they kind of win the fist fight, mm-hmm. right? But. At the very end of it, one of the Arab guys pulls out a blade and slashes up Raymond's arm and his mouth. Oh. And so he's all messed up. And so they go to see one of Masson's doctor friends and they get him patched up and then they all come back. And it's kind of like, just ruined the feel of the day. Sure has. Yes. Yeah, right? Yeah. He's, our main character's got a headache. It's kind of hot. Everybody's <laughs> like, there's a lot of tension because somebody got in a knife fight and got all uh-huh. sliced up. And so I was like, I just got to get out of here. I can't handle this anymore. So him and... So he leaves his friend. Well, him and him and Raymond decide to go on another walk on the beach because Raymond isn't happy, right? He's not having a good time. He just has to like go get some tension out. And so he's like, I'll walk with you. You okay. know, if you're going to take a walk, let's walk down the beach. And they walk down the beach and they find the two Arab guys down there near a little spring. And they're just kind of sitting there. One of the guys is playing a flute, just three notes. Hoo, hee, hoo, hoo, hee, hoo, like that. Uh-huh. And Raymond has a gun and he's like, should I shoot him? And he's like, you can't shoot him if, unless he pulls the knife on you. If he pulls the knife on you, then you can shoot. That's what... Marceau says, and he's like, fine, you hold the gun for me so I don't do anything stupid. Passes him the gun. They kind of look at each other for a while, and nothing happens. And they decide to go back to the bungalow. But everything, but he's kind of still tense, and our main character doesn't really want to go in and face the ladies and the the worries and all that stuff. So he turns around and decides, like, it's either deal with everybody inside where everyone is tense or deal with the heat out here, and it's really hot, so I'll just deal with the heat. So he decides to walk back. He doesn't know why he just wants to walk and he feels like the sun beating on the back of his head. So he feels compelled to go forward to escape the sun, even though he knows it won't help. And eventually he sees the Arab guys again. There's one guy there and they kind of eye each other out of the corner of the eye. And he's, he feels that he still has the gun in his pocket and he sort of walks up and the sun is just beating down on his head and it's really unpleasant. Uh, and let's see if I can find the, the line. Cause it's, It's really compelled. My whole being tensed, and I squeezed my hand around the revolver. The trigger gave. I felt the smooth underside of the butt, and there, in that noise, sharp and deafening at the same time as where it all started. I shook off the sweat and sun. I knew that I had shattered the harmony of the day, the exceptional silence of a beach where I'd been happy. 
Then I fired four more times at the motionless body where the bullets lodged without leaving a trace, and it was like knocking four quick times on the door of unhappiness. And that ends part one. So, Oh, you poor thing. He shot a guy. He yeah. Shot a guy. And he was mostly because he was hot. Oh, he's sunny. Unhappy. He's all, oh, oh. So you don't, like, you don't like him. Oh, poor guy. So hot and knocking <laughs> on the door of unhappiness. So he just unloaded on some dude. Okay. And the second part, we can spend maybe a little less time with. Okay. I mean, I'm going to kind of skim over pieces of it. But he's arrested, right? Yeah. As should happen when sure. you shoot a guy five times at the beach. So they arrested him for murder. And he's very straightforward. He likes his investigators and he almost like, he tells him everything. He's very, he's like, this is what happened. And I was really hot and I shot the guy and then I shot him four more times. And so he admits to it. There's it was no really uncomfortable. Surprise. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't like go there specifically to shoot him. I was just walking on the beach and it was very sunny and I was very sweaty and he was there and I shot him. And he thought that the investigators were very nice. And so he almost shook his hand. He's like, but then I remembered I was a murderer. So I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and, and then he talks to the the head examining magistrate and the guy pulls out a crucifix and tries to convert him. He's like, aren't you going to say sorry for your sins? And he's like, no, I don't think so. It's like, I'm not even really sure what a sin is. Yeah. I think that might come later. He's like, I don't really understand what you're trying to do. And he's like, I've never seen a soul as hardened as yours. Every sinner always has some reaction to this and breaks down crying. He's like, well, I don't really believe in God. So he, he wants to be accommodating though. And every time after that, it's fairly comfortable and, at the very end, whenever the magistrate sends him out, he's like, well, Mr. Antichrist, that'll be all for today. And he's like, and I really enjoyed those times when he would clap me on the shoulder and call me Mr. Antichrist and send me out. And then he sort of gets used to prison. He really doesn't like it initially, but he uh -huh. kind of accommodates himself. He's like, once you sort of like narrow your expectations, you can get used to any place. He's like, if I, I think if I could have lived inside of a tree staring upwards at the sky, I think I'd get used to it eventually, <laughs> right? You can get used to anything eventually. That's what my mom used to say. And so he gets used to prison, and then we have the trial, which is some more of this ridiculous things. And the prosecution... How's Marie doing through this whole thing? Uh, she comes, stops coming to see him after, I think, after the trial. Mm. But initially, she comes to see him and tries to smile, and she tries to take care of him. But he's like, it was really loud in there, and I couldn't really hear her. And <laughs> there's somebody next to me talking about a basket that they had to drop off to their kid. And she seemed nice, but I was just, I was getting kind of hot and annoyed with everybody talking around me. And at the trial, the prosecutor tries to paint him as some monster with no remorse and he says what he's and they bring up a ton all of this business with his mom right that oh, him you should have caring yeah you should yeah. have shown remorse because he didn't show any remorse the prosecution painted it as almost worse than the parasite what's this about his mom tried later that day huh what's this about his mom remember his mom died at the beginning yeah, yeah. and he didn't have any rem like he didn't show any feeling over that right. weekend oh and so it's brought up a ton at the trial that, mm. and weirdly enough, remember when I told you he smoked a cigarette yes. mm -hmm. and had, took a cup of coffee? Yes. They make a big deal out of that. They say, and they will conclude that a stranger may offer a cup of coffee, but that beside the body of one who brought him into the world, a son should have refused it. And I wonder if that's where we get the title for our book, The Stranger. Oh. It's the guy that offered him the cup of coffee and he took it in front of his mom. But they make a really big deal about this. And they're like, you are the worst kind of person that is outside of society and you're a monster and this is terrible and we should kill you. I'm sympathetic to that argument. <laughs> oh my God. And But he says no. Maybe not the kill you. They, they do have their final statements and both lawyers give some big ones and he is condemned to having his cut off for, his head cut off for the good of the French people. Really? They still guillotine back then? Yeah, hmm. I guess. I and La France. And he takes, he takes issue with the, there's no chance. Like, of him getting out of it? The, yeah. He's, he's caught up in this machinery of justice. 
for something. And he even tries to tell him like, look, it was the sun that made me do it. It wasn't premeditated. I was really hot and it's a thing that happened and I didn't intend to shoot him. It just, it was, he was there and I was there and I had a gun and boom, it happened. They made a big deal of him pausing before the next four shots. Right. And he, he thinks that there should be some chance, like a one in 10 chance that the drugs don't work on the table or that they'll like give you a chance to run away and maybe you can make it, but they'll probably shoot you like that. Cause the way it is, you just sort of hope that the guillotine works the first time. And so you're forced into the sort of mental collaboration with your own ex, like moral collaboration with your own execution. Yep. Right. And he, he struggles with hope. He hopes for his, his appeal to go through, but it's, it's not really happening. And he just gets really depressed and only allows himself hope after he fully entertains his own coming death and kind of deals with, if I don't die now, I would have died 20 years from now. And then my feelings would be exactly the same, right? I would know it was coming. What changes that it's 20 years earlier. And then he lets himself have a little bit of hope. And so it's just sort of the story of a condemned man. And that's the story kind of all the way up to near the end. And what we are going to read together with the permission of the audience is the exchange of the last couple pages. Okay. Have fun. Yeah, seriously. Okay, so here you go. Thank you. So right before, so he's been sitting in jail for a few days, every night hoping that he doesn't hear the workmen working on the guillotine outside, and every morning afraid that he'll hear footsteps that are coming for him. And then who comes to visit him is a priest. And he has been refusing this priest's admittance for days, right? He has been saying, you cannot come to see me, and he refused him today too. Who are you, Megby? I'm the priest. Oh, I'm Marceau. Oh, I actually wanted to switch that. Can we switch him? Oh, wait, no. What does that mean? <laughs> because I think I think Donaldson can bring the frantic, frenetic effort of the priest together. Interesting. I originally thought you priest, Magby, because your voice is so wonderful and soothing. But the priest kind of loses it near the end, and I'm I'm Ooh. hoping that Donaldson can kind of bring that bring that you, to those the Those are fore. your character notes, Graham. Do you feel good about that? I'm just saying that like uh, I have more lines. You have way more lines. I have like more <laughs> words. <laughs> it's true. It's, uh, Okay, so the Talent priest rises to the top. <laughs> the priest comes in. He sat there for a few seconds, leaning forward, with his elbows on his knees, looking at his hands. They were slender and sinewy, and they reminded me of two nimble animals. He slowly rubbed one against the other. Then he sat there, leaning forward like that, for so long that for an instant, I seemed to forget he was there. But suddenly he raised his head and looked straight at me. Why have you refused to see me? He asked. I said that I didn't believe in God. He wanted to know if I was sure, and I said that I didn't see any reason to ask myself that question. It seemed unimportant. He then leaned back against the wall, hands flat on his thighs, almost as if it wasn't me he was talking to. He remarked that sometimes we think we're sure when in fact we're not. I didn't say anything. He looked at me and asked, What do you think? I said it was possible. In any case, I may not have been sure about what really did interest me, but I was absolutely sure about what didn't. And it just so happened that he was talking, that what he was talking about didn't interest me. He looked away and, without moving, asked me if I wasn't talking that way out of extreme despair. I explained to him that I wasn't desperate. I was just afraid, which was only natural. Then God can help you, he said. Every man I have known in your position has turned to him. I acknowledged that that was their right. It also meant that they must have had the time for it. As for me, I didn't want anybody's help, and I just didn't have the time to interest myself in what didn't interest me. At that point, he threw up his hands in annoyance, but then sat forward and smoothed out the folds of his cassock. When he had finished, he started in again, addressing me as my friend. If he was talking to me in this way, it wasn't because I was condemned to die. The way he saw it, we were all condemned to die. 
But I interrupted him by saying that it wasn't the same thing, and that besides, it wouldn't be a consolation anyway. Certainly. He agreed. But if you don't die today, you'll die tomorrow or the next day. And then the same question will arise. How will you face that terrifying ordeal? I said I would face it exactly as I was facing it now. At that, he stood up and looked me straight in the eye. It was a game I knew well. I played it a lot with Emmanuel and Celeste. Uh, they're two guys he knows. Celeste was a sh- shopkeeper. And usually they were the ones who looked away. The chaplain knew the game well, too. I could tell right away. His gaze never faltered. And his voice didn't falter either when he said, Have you no hope at all? And do you really live with the thought that when you die, you die and nothing remains? Yes. I said. Then he lowered his head and sat back down. He told me that he pitied me. He thought it was more than a man could bear. I didn't feel anything except that he was beginning to annoy me. Then I turned away and went and stood against, stood under the skylight. I leaned my shoulder against the wall. Without really following what he was saying, I heard him start asking me questions again. He was talking in an agitated, urgent voice. I could see that he was genuinely upset, so I listened more closely. <laughs> he, he tries to mollify people as best he can. He was expressing his certainty that my appeal would be granted, but I was carrying the burden of a sin from which I had to free myself. According to him, human justice was nothing and divine justice was everything. I pointed out that it was the former that had condemned me. He respond, his response was that it hadn't washed away my sin for all that. I told him I didn't know what a sin was. All they had told me was that I was guilty. I was guilty. I was paying for it and nothing more could be asked of me. At that point, he stood up again, and the thought occurred to me that in such a narrow cell, if he wanted to move around, he didn't have many options. He could either sit down or stand up. I was staring at the ground. He took a step toward me and stopped, as if he didn't dare come any closer. He looked at the sky through the bars. You're wrong, my son, he said. More could be asked of you, and it may be asked. And what's that? You could be asked to see. See what? The priest gazed around my cell and answered in a voice that sounded very weary to me. Every stone here sweats with suffering. I know that. I have never looked at them without a feeling of anguish. But deep in my heart, I know that the most wretched among you have seen a divine face emerge from their darkness. That is the face you are asked to see. Oh, this perked me up a little. I said I'd been looking at the stones in these walls for months. There wasn't anything or anyone in the world I knew better. Maybe at one time, way back, I had searched for a face in them, but the face I was looking for was as bright as the sun and the flame of desire, and it belonged to Marie. I had searched for it in vain. Now it was all over. And in any case, I'd never seen anything emerge from any sweating stones. The chaplain looked at me with a kind of sadness. I now had my back flat against the wall and light was streaming over my forehead. He muttered a few words I didn't catch and abruptly asked if he could embrace me. No. I said. He turned and walked over to the wall and slowly ran his hand over it. Do you really love this earth as much as all that? He murmured. I didn't answer. He stood there with his back to me for quite a long time. His presence was grating and oppressive. I was just about to tell him to go, to leave me alone, when all of a sudden, turning toward me, he burst out. No, I refuse to believe you. I know that at one time or another, you've wished for another life. I said, of course I had, but it didn't mean anything more than wishing to be rich or to be able to swim faster or to have more nicely shaped mouth. It was all the same. But he stopped me and wanted to know how I pictured this other life. Then I shouted at him. One where I could remember this life. And that's when I told him I'd had enough. He wanted to talk to me about God again, but I went up to him and made one last attempt to explain to him that I had only a little time left and I didn't want to waste it on God. He tried to change the subject by asking me why I was calling him Monsieur and not Father. That got me mad and I told him he wasn't my father. He wasn't even on my side. Yes, my son. He said, putting, my hand on, putting his hand on my shoulder. I am on your side. But you have no way of knowing it because your heart is blind. 
I shall pray for you. Then, I don't know why, but something inside me snapped. I started yelling at the top of my lungs, and I insulted him and told him not to waste his prayers on me. I grabbed him by the collar of his cassock. I was pouring out on him everything that was in my heart, cries of anger and cries of joy. He seemed so certain about everything, didn't he? And none of his certainties was worth one hair of a woman's head. He wasn't even sure he was alive because he was living like a dead man, whereas it looked as if I was the one who'd come up empty-handed. But I was sure about me, about everything, surer than he could ever be, sure of my life and sure of the death I had waiting for me. Yes, that was all I had. But at least I had as much of a hold on it as it had on me. I had been right. I was still right. I was always right. I had lived my life one way and I could just as well have lived it another. I had done this and I hadn't done that. I hadn't done this thing, but I had done another. And so it was as if I had waited all this time for this moment and for the first light of this dawn to be vindicated. Nothing, nothing mattered. And I knew why and so did he. Throughout the whole absurd life I'd lived, a dark wind had been rising toward me from somewhere deep in my future, across years that were still to come. And as it passed, this wind leveled whatever was offered to me at the time in years no more real than the ones I was living. What did other people's deaths or a mother's love matter to me? What did his God or the lives of people choose or the lives people choose or the fate they think they elect matter to me when we're all elected by the same fate? Me and billions of people like him who also called themselves my brothers. Couldn't he see? Couldn't he see that? Everybody was privileged. There were only privileged people. The others would all be condemned one day and he would be condemned too. What would it matter if he were accused of murder and then executed because he didn't cry at his mom's funeral? Salamano's dog was worth just as much as his wife. The little robot woman, it's a woman he saw in a, in a bar once, was just as guilty as the Parisian woman Masson married, or as Marie, who had wanted me to marry her. What did it matter that Raymond was as much my friend as Celeste, who was worth a lot more than him? What did it matter that Marie now offered her lips to a new Merceau? Couldn't he, couldn't this condemned man see, and that from somewhere deep in my future, all the shouting, all the shouting had me grasping for air. But they were already tearing the chaplain from my grip, and the guards were threatening me. He calmed them, though, and looked at me from a moment without saying anything. His eyes were full of tears. Then he turned and disappeared. With him gone, I was able to calm down again. I was exhausted and threw myself on the bunk. I must have fallen asleep because I woke up with the stars in my face. Sounds of the countryside were drifting in. Smells of night, earth, and salt air were cooling my temples. The wondrous place of that sleeping summer flowed through me like a tide. Then in the dark hour before dawn, sirens blasted. They were announcing departures for a world that now and forever meant nothing to me. For the first time in a long time, I thought about Maman. I felt as if I understood why at the end of her life she had taken a fiancé, why she had played at beginning again, even there in that home where lives were fading out. Evening was a kind of wistful respite, so close to death. Mama must have felt free then and ready to live it all again. Nobody, nobody had the right to cry over her. And I felt ready to live it all again too, as if that blind rage had washed me clean, rid me of hope for the first time in that night alive with signs and stars, I opened myself to the gentle indifference of the world, finding it so much like myself, so like a brother, really. I felt that I had been happy and that I was happy again. For everything to be consummated, for me to feel less alone, I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators the day of my execution, and that they greet me with cries of hate." Graham is not happy. Graham has feels. All right. So that is, that's how the book, I, I'm sorry I didn't tell that's you the end of the audience. That's the end of the book. Hmm. Uh, that's how it ends. He is condemned to die and he dies. And that scene. Presumably. Uh, presumably. Fair. I mean, they're I not going to describe it, but that's, that's the story. So I want to get your guys' response first, and then we'll talk a little bit about this fellow's philosophy and I, how that affected me personally. So what do you guys think? Graham is not having a favorable response. 
He's cranky. Oh, no, it's just, it's so, it's just like. Juvenile. What do you mean? That he is like, no one has a right to cry over my mother. Um, uh, human beings, like we live in the vast indifference of the world wherein like we are all condemned to die. So why do all, it's, it's, it's the same reason why we were rolling our eyes and moaning about Holden Caulfield. It's the, for me, it's the same ethos as Holden Caulfield. The like, everyone's a phony, at least the only difference I guess from Holden Caulfield is like, he doesn't think he's not a phony. Holden Caulfield thinks he's like not the phony and everybody else is a phony. With this one, that this uh, Marceau thinks that he is, he's just as meaningless as everything. And, um, um, and so what is his, what's his, like his desire? What, what, what does he hold on to? The fact that, uh, at least he's what man enough to face it. Yep. And everyone else isn't everyone's sort of hiding behind things. Um, and, it's got the veneer of romantic. He's like, everything this priest believes is not worth like the hair on a beautiful woman's head, which is like a very French thing to say. Um, but it's also like, okay, fine. That sounds romantic. And you read that and you're like, Oh yes, that is so meaningful. And you, you know, you smoke your cigarette and you think that that is, that is so profound, but like let that philosophy play itself over a life and you will like smother and kill any person that, you love if that's how you sort of are going to treat them that you're going to sort of venerate them as some kind of reason for existing like the fire that i had inside me burned for marie like no that's that's ridiculous but he's he's really clear with himself that it's mostly physical lust he knows it he he tells her i probably don't love you yeah and when she's there he's not like i wanted to talk to her and get to know her and pour into her he's like i wished i could touch her dress and feel the thinness of the material and squeeze her shoulders. Like he wants, and even during the trial, he doesn't really make eye contact with her that many times. There's just too much going on and it's really hot and there flies around and everybody looks funny. And yeah, that kind of like boiling things down to the, the like tyranny of the present moment, um, where everything like he lives a flat existence everything is as meaningless and meaningful as everything else. So the shooting of a man, the love of a woman, the conversations about God and like walking around and feeling kind of gross because how hot it is, is of equal importance uh, to him and is, is professed uh, with sort of equal importance. And so when it says like, he stared at me in the eye and gave me that look. And this is a game I know well. It's because everybody, yeah, of course you know that game well. Everybody you meet is going to be ticked off at you and is going to like <laughs> look at you and be like, Are you serious? Right. Are you serious saying things like that? And, and which is what um, the court case revealed, right? Yeah. That his lack of reaction to his mother dying. His lack of reaction to his mother. So, I mean, like, what? Is this guy a sociopath? Is he just. Well, they describe him as a monster and we're left with the question, Is he? Uh, no. Not a monster. That's not the right term. Yeah, this this book and I'm, I'm, I don't know if we'll go in, into more of this this time. He or, lacks occasion. Sure, if or for your or if this will be more part two. Existentialism is tough because there's a lot to really like about it. The, um, the um, yeah, I don't know if this even gets into well, this, existentialism. It's hint, It seems to be hinted at with that last little explosion of yeah, the gentle indifference of the world. 
earlier when it says that I had chosen to live this way and not another way. And I'm the one who made that choice and there were consequences to it. And that's all there is to it. I mean, that's kind of a, that gets at, um, the meaning is derived from your actions, not from who you're supposed to be in the first place. That's, um, a form of existentialism. So that's, what's tough about this. I really like all of that. It's the importance of actions. It's the importance of taking ownership of the consequences of those actions, but there's something to, I think comparing, um, Merceau to Caulfield is an apt comparison. He's, he seems adolescent in some sense. He is, uh, I'm going to say he's thoughtless to which AJ would say, no, he's always aware of his feelings perfectly to which I'd say, but he hasn't considered the importance of those feelings. Like that's the thoughtlessness. He doesn't have the right reactions to yes, the, c- an, the scenarios, to the circumstances, to it, but it's like a, it's an immature honesty. It, he says technically true things through the entire, what, what we just covered but they aren't the full truth of what's happening. So, yeah, he's authentic. Yes. And so I think there's an attractiveness to be to someone to who, is, who is actually yes. authentic as yes. opposed to play acting or, or being, you know, to, to talk about Holden Caulfield, to be phony. So he's not like hamming it up for the courtroom to try to get out of this thing. Right. So he's authentically owning what he's done, but um, his authenticity doesn't get, him, doesn't get him off the hook for having the wrong reactions to the events of a regular human life. This would, yeah. Authenticity is not sufficient as like a, a moral gauge. Right. Yeah. But there is something that is, I feel bad. Cause we're like crapping on AJ's the book AJ liked in college. He's going to come back and tell I us. I didn't oh. say why I liked it. Oh, okay. That's exactly good. Um, so yeah, I, but again, I, but I want to say there's something appealing to that authenticity. And that's the part that's hard about this is there's part of this that I appreciate. And I think there's an important strand being pulled on here, but overall I would not want to trade places with, or so right i mean who would he's in jail and condemned to die but when he says at the end that he's like opened himself to this like happiness um uh, i felt that i had been happy and that i was happy again like he does not what we view as a tragedy he is not viewing as a tragedy right Mm -hmm. so i guess he would say it doesn't mean anything to trade places with someone else but the veneration of this kind of attitude as heroic is also something that kind of isn't uh bothers me like that this kind of uh this kind of emotionless indifference to the things of the world is treated as like somehow deep and profound um but really it's i it's it's well i mean it either it's it's just it's just not dealing with with a thing of the world so i mean like this is um i've been rewatching. um Mr. Robot. Did you ever watch that series? Nope. No. Yes. Did you watch it? Pieces of it. So I've been rewatching. I, I stopped in season two. I, I've been rewatching bits of it. It's kind of a, a weird thing to be watching during the middle of a global pandemic. But the main character, like the Elliot Alderson character is very similar to this kind of thing where there's, mm-hmm. there's kind of that. Um, also, maybe you can get into like a Raskolnikov type of thing. Well, Raskolnikov's a little bit different. But this, the the sort of the veneration of the, the coldly indifferent to the 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 high passions of life and, and passing that off as saying that this is a, a profound and a authentic way of existing, I think is, uh, not true. I think is disingenuous. I think the like 15 year old kid that reads this and is like, yes, that's the way that you can beat the feels. That's the way that you can like not get dragged down in the difficulty of life is to rise above it with basically, neutering everything in the world right. and treating it with, with this indifference. That's real power. 
And I don't, and that's real sort of ownership of self. And I don't think that's true. What do you think, AJ? I'm wondering if we're talking about both sides of our mouth, because so far back we had a podcast on Boethius and doesn't Boethius say the same thing that we are to be happy despite our circumstances. What is this other than happiness despite circumstances? He's not happy. He is. He said no, he's happy. He at says the end. he's happy. He has been happy and he's happy again. I would say the difference is that Boethius um, had a, had something tragic happen to him, whereas Merceau shot a man. So there's a difference in the origin of the action. The punishment Merceau receives is just for his poor action. Boethius was a he was unduly um, exiled and then ultimately killed. not entirely. He did prevent a plot from the Senate from reaching the ears of Theodoric the Ostrogoth, and for that reason was condemned as treasonous, even though he was just trying to prevent the deaths of an entire Senate. He, uh, from what I understand, he did do something wrong. Sure. I would, it's at a different scale, I guess is what I would say, um, compared to literally killing a man in cold blood. There's, there's something noble hot about blood. Boethius' really hot action. That day. Yes. Yeah. Okay, hot so sure. they, they both find themselves in jail, and mm. perhaps the different thing that landed them there like that is a different thing but does the nobility of the action that landed them in prison change what attitude they should have in prison and where both end in difference in indifference to their circumstances oh like whether or not however they ended up there they end up with kind of the same attitude i can be happy anywhere yes and that's a problem again that's where i say the trouble is that there are parts of it that sound really appealing um I do think it matters. I mean, Rousseau hasn't dealt with the divine part of what happens after he dies in a way that Boethius has, mm-hmm. which is kind of the point uh, or a piece of the of what Lady Philosophy is teaching him. Um, yeah. I, and again, Lady, I think it matters why they ended up Yeah, there Lady Philosophy does not teach him that, like, you, you can take your sort of stoic uh, uh, view of the world because everything is ultimately meaningless and doesn't mean anything. Lady Philosophy teaches Boethius that you are still to love the good for the right reasons, whereas um, Marceau does not live a life trying to write the... So the difference is that Boethius um, attempts, you know, to live a good life and then just the, uh, the volatility of the world and the sort of the, the injustice catches up of the world catches up with him. And yes, maybe he's thrown in prison because he got, up in some, got caught up in a political scheme or maybe it was purely unjust... But with Marceau, he killed a man and is not guilty about it um, and looks the priest in the eye and tells him that he's happy because he's shouldered the responsibility of, like, sucking meaning out of the world. And those are him and Boethius are very different positions with that because the cure for Marceau um, is that he needs to... Um, uh, drain the world of, of meaning, whereas Boethius doesn't do that. He doesn't drain the world of meaning in order to, like, be happy or in order to be content. So I feel like that's the big difference, is that Boethius still posits a meaningful universe with a, with, with a concept of the good that can be known, where there is a God that is good. Like, the, him and Lady Philosophy go all through reminding him and, and uh, giving him recollection of all the things that he has learned under her tutelage. Whereas the priest comes and maybe does a bad job of it, but try, but is giving, but is asking uh, the prisoner questions about the good and questions about God. And he's like, ah, that doesn't really interest me. But 
so the point on gentle indifference that Merceau makes then is that not dissimilar to the wheel of fortune? So Boethius says there's essentially no moral significance to whether you're wealthy or you're in poverty. Right? No, it's just that you don't get to know what it is. Correct. It's not that there is no, it's, it's not, not that there's no meaning. It's that the meaning is something that human beings don't get to understand. So fortune does it from her own because she's been given license, given license by God to keep, Keep the world but, churning. But from what I understand, what Boethius is promoting is a decoupling of your moral well-being from your fortune. Like, the, you the, might be yes. down in the dumps, your happiness needs to be stuck somewhere else. Yes. Which seems to be exactly what our main character no. is doing. No, he is decoupling himself from moral well-being. He's not decoupling his moral well-being from fortune. He's decoupling his identity from any sense of moral well-being. And therein is finding his happiness, as he claims. Okay. So here... Oh, man, it's it's a bummer we have so little time left. Uh, <laughs> this is, I, I honestly thought this episode may not go the full time, but I, I think we're going to end up not, not having enough. It is a two-parter. It is. It is a two-parter, but this is the part that we may not return to. And I don't know, maybe it's a little more self-revelatory. So this book appeals to me at least a little bit. And I wonder... I. I wonder. I wondered in reading it another time if this book had more of a profound influence on me than I thought, or if it was simply how thoughty I was as a kid. But what you said earlier—that the full truth extends further than the real—I I realized, I think, rather young that something could be called like the same action can be called surgery or murder, depending on the intent behind the action. Right? If I slit you from stem to stern. Uh, I mean, I guess there's a little, little bit different outcome, <laughs> but maybe there isn't a different outcome. Maybe you die in both cases. You right. you bleed out. If I was trying to help you, I'm called a doctor. If I was trying to hurt you, I'm called a murderer when the the action performed upon you is the same. Um, and so that is meaning given by human intent and by human moral evaluation, right? And so to a certain extent, like those things are not real. They are not, they are not, hold on, let me finish. Those things are not actual in this world, right? The actual action was a knife went into okay. you and moved and you got separated. Some, some things happened in your body that are either going to be helpful to your living or unhelpful to your living. And how you feel about that is meaning that is foisted upon it by you and by the society around you. And so... Uh, so let me let me let me get there. Me, it's still you're, meaning. You're having so so many feels. So I think I I tend to be a very happy, peaceful person, right? Or at least I'm steady. And part of that is by de decoupling my passions from things that I don't feel necessary for them to get hacked about like when people are offended about things for example i heard that some people were offended about the latest season of the great british bake-off why i don't care like that has no purchase in my life at all and that's something that doesn't like not only is it not real it'll never be real and it doesn't matter at all that that's something that doesn't bother me in fact i'm very hard to offend i i rarely get offended in fact the only thing that ever seems to really offend me is when my personal pride is challenged and that's only really, not rarely because I'm so awesome, no one challenges it, but because I, I usually, you know, I, I struggle with it, but there's usually very rarely, like, if someone directly calls me stupid to my face, nobody enjoys that, and I don't enjoy that either. But other than that, like, I think I, for a long time, decoupled meaning from things. And I wonder how much this book and that attitude has influenced me. And I think only in recent years, and you guys, this is the part where you guys get to fix me, 
But I think the important difference here between me and Merceau and Boethius is that where I find my deep peace is that I don't see the world as, as meaningless necessarily. I see some of the small things meaningless in the great scheme of things. And from that, I'm taking from Ecclesiastes, right? All is grasping for the wind. All is meaningless and grasping for the wind. It's all vapor. Our lives are but a vapor and won't won't be here as long as the grass. And so all those little things that I could get all hacked up about and go all screwy over, it'll be over in a week. Like if it's, if it's a big problem and when I die, it's not going to matter to anybody, at least of all me. And if I can couch that rather than in meaningless as our main character does, but in the overall redemption of the universe, right? My, yeah, my life might be kind of crappy, but God is sovereign. That's a huge difference. God is sovereign and I'm headed for heaven. And and so in, in the big scheme of things, in the eternal scheme, these things don't really matter. And I don't have to get my hackles up about them. I don't have to be ruffled because somebody is having a small problem that in a week's time isn't going to matter. And I try to remind my students of that. This test seems to matter to you now, but when you're 30, you literally won't remember that it happened. You won't remember this test at all. And for that reason, like it just turns down the volume on everything. And I'm, what I'm worried is that now the volume is just low on my life. Right. And Graham, you talk about the high, the high passions, right? I don't have many. I mean, I, I do occasionally, but it's not, it's definitely not a constant thing. I'm more of a, I'm, I'm a, a calm and windless sea as it were. And I'm wondering if that's a bad thing. Um, I, I find myself at peace and generally happy most of the time. And that's couched in, I, I think, an eternal attitude. But I think functionally, it's not very different from Merceau. But so, I mean, when I think high passions, I think it's more my feeling on is best captured with the idea of occasion. Hand I me think, a donut. I, will, yes. <laughs> I think you are totally right in saying that saying that like the test is not a really meaningful thing. And in 30, when you're 30, you won't even remember taking it. Um and that you can say that's one thing, but it's also, but it's it's slightly different to say, well, your marriage day is just one day out of any any other day, and right. in thirty years it won't mean anything to you anymore. And when you say that, it's like, well, no, that shouldn't be the way that we think about a marriage day, or that shouldn't be the way that we think about your son being born, or something like that. That, and so you would, I think we would rightly say that the person who takes that level of indifference to those sorts of things is, and I know that you would agree, is is not. Isn't is that fault, right? Like um, stable sentiments, and and the stable sentiments doesn't mean you don't you you're stable and you don't feel things. Stable sentiments means that you have the appropriate feeling for the for the appropriate occasion. Um, if something terrible happened um, to a student at this school and all of their ninth grade friends were crying, you wouldn't say, "When you're 45, you'll probably you'll have a hard time remembering what he looked like." No, you don't like that's <laughs> that may be true, but you don't. That that's uh, that doesn't it shouldn't be you don't that. want it and yeah. you also you don't want it to be true so um, there's the I think like emotional health has to involve f- um, um, the appropriate feeling at at the action or the appropriate feeling for the context now the worry is that the we don't we can't contain the appropriate feeling and then we 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 react big so when you say like people getting their shorts in a wad about about Great British Bake Off, yeah, that's emotionally immature. But um, somebody who sort of snickers at their grandfather's funeral is also is equally as emotionally immature. And um, and somebody that kind of downplays the importance of their wedding day, you would also 
be concerned about their maturity. I don't know. I, I remember um, somebody uh, um, somebody complimented me on something, and I really downplayed it, and I was, I was sort of like, I don't even know if I feigned offense or if I was actually offended, but I kind of downplayed it. And then a couple of days passed, and the person came back to me later and said, like, I, I like when someone compliments you on something that they actually thought was good, you need to don't just like say it was nothing, you know, say thank you for it and recognize the occasion and also the sort of the vulnerability that it takes for so, the person on the other side to come and, you know, say something. So maybe I think that's the other thing that sort of is bothering me about this main character is that he doesn't realize that everybody else has the same that he doesn't realize that other people are people too like Hmm. um there's there's a complete sort of he's so confused when marie is sad when he says that he would probably marry anybody else who asked him to marry her he's like well she didn't want to eat her dinner i wonder why well it's like that that's a problem um and boethius doesn't have that problem and that's that seems to be a a um that that's a that's a difference between the two of them all right so as a last Thomas, do you have any? No, okay. okay, so as a last thing, and as a preview for my next episode, I'm going to talk about the death of my grandpa. I know a, a heavy way to end this. I didn't cry that day. And what happened is I went over to his house and he had died while taking a nap on the couch. And they had him on the floor and he was covered with a yellow sheet with tubes sticking out of you know where his head would be. And there was a... To to add to the strange symbolism of the day, there was a National Geographic that said the deep freeze sitting on his coffee table, and then my grandma had had lost her you know her mind a little. She was she had dementia, and she was confused about why everyone was there, and she thought we should take advantage of the time and everyone take a Christmas picture together. So she kept on trying to get everyone together for a Christmas picture. Eventually, she saw her husband on the floor and said, "Is that Art, my, my grandpa?" and we're like, yeah. And then she goes, get him out of here. I guess she didn't want to see the body. And then to mirror her, there was a can of mixed nuts on the table. So to again, add to the strange symbolism of the day. And as the two undertakers came up to the door, I saw them through the window and they were laughing and joking and punching each other in the arm and having a really good time. And then they rang the doorbell. And when I opened it, they were straight faced. I'm very sorry for them. It was another day. And I suppose for me, it didn't come as a shock. My grandfather was over 80 years old. I knew it was coming eventually. And my grandma had been crazy for a long time. And so when it finally came, I didn't, I didn't feel surprised. I didn't feel shocked. And as an English teacher, I guess I think about death a lot. And so death, doesn't, death at the end of a human life doesn't come as a shock to me. And I love my grandpa. But I also knew that he was headed for heaven. And so there's this strange absurdity to life. Nothing was the way I expected it. The sheet was yellow and plastic, not white like a sheet you see in the movies. And my grandma was trying to get us all to take Christmas pictures. And it was just the strangest day I've had in a long time. And that absurdity, the the weird, I, I want to say meaninglessness, but I, I told you about the symbolism. The, the weirdness of life is what Camus comments upon in this book and in the myth of Sisyphus, which we'll get to next week. What do we do in front of this strange absurdity of life? How do we deal with that? And uh, the question for him is whether we should all sort of end it. If, if life is so goofy and weird and strange and meaningless, why, why live it at all if we're just going to end in, at the end anyway, right? If there's a, especially if there's suffering in the mix, why not just opt out? And so that's, that's his question for the myth of Sisyphus to be taken next week. 
Um, yeah, I look forward to the conversation. I got thoughts. Life is weird. And I hope you have thoughts. If you have specific things you want to say to me or say about this book, you can send them in to the guys at classicalstuff.net, I guess. Yeah. Do you want to keep this conversation going in the in-between episode also? If you guys want. Sure. Okay. So we'll um, uh, keep talking about this in our um, in-between episodes, which we post on Patreon for supporters there. You can find that at patreon.com. There's so many stuff. wonderful nuggets in there. Oh, my there's, word. There's a lot of, yeah. Um, uh, I you, sing a lot. <laughs> that is There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin. I think you opened this episode with singing. So I, I didn't realize yeah. I did. Well, I feel like any time microphone is in your... Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you, uh, AJ just said this. You can email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And I think those are our places. Or classical, classicalstuff.net if you want to check out our website. Also on YouTube, you can search classical stuff there. Our list is getting very long of places to find us. I think that is everything. So cool. for Graham, AJ, and Thomas, we are signing off. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 It's me. I got to press pause. No, no, no. You hit the button. Wait for it.